All right, if you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 54. Psalm 54. <clears throat> I thought it was interesting, Brother Tim mentioned something about two hours of preaching today or next two hours. I didn't know he looked at my notes. But, uh... <laughs> no, we, uh, we, we do have a relatively short psalm today. Uh, I, I don't anticipate being two hours this morning, so um, it, is a, it is a good, really good song. But I tell you what, while you're on... Um, we're going to read it here in a second, but before we, we start there, I want you to turn also with me. Put, keep your hand in Psalm 54, but turn with me to, to 1 Samuel chapter 23. We will come back to that in just a moment. <clears throat> keep your hand on, on 1 Samuel chapter 23. Let's begin by reading the psalm. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a masquil of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? Beginning in verse 1, O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer, give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me, ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a freewill offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. So, we, we see here in the title some very similar things that we've seen in several of these, these psalms, especially recently. Uh, it's, it begins much the same as, as 53 did to the choir master. Talks about the with stringed instruments, a maskil of David. Uh, we've said before, but that term maskil is most likely just a, a, a term of direction of music or uh, something along those lines. Nothing really that uh, you know we we know other than that. But interestingly, the title goes on, and, and we get something different here. We get a setting here for our, our psalm. We're told that David wrote this around or about when the Ziphites went and told Saul. Is not David hiding among us? So I want you to hold your place there in Psalm 54 and, and go back to 1 Samuel 23 with me. I, I, I want to kind of give us a good picture of the setting of this psalm before we go into it. So bear with me for a moment while I kind of give us a, a brief history lesson and then we go into uh, 1 Samuel 23 to give us the setting uh, even more in detail. But so. If you recall any of your biblical history, especially about David, you know David was, he was very young, likely anywhere from 10 to 15 years old, when Saul was rejected by God as king, and Samuel was sent to David, to Jesse and, and his sons, to choose David as the new king, as his next king. He was anointed king in that point at that point in 1 Samuel chapter 16 soon after that he became Saul's armor bearer he was likely still a teenager when he fought Goliath his his first obviously major test and battle after killing Goliath David went on to become a great commander and, and he warred against the Philistines where he had many victories he became best friends with Saul's son Jonathan the whole nation to that point seemed to love David and they believed him to be Saul's greatest champion really but things began to change for David, and his life was quickly put in danger. 
We know that he was around, or he was, 30 years old according to 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 4, when he actually started to reign over Israel. But there was that period of time after killing Goliath and, and having those victories over the Philistines and being close to Saul himself and basically being his right-hand man, there was a period of time where David, he's on the run. He had been battle-tested to that point, right? To, to, the, to, his, to the, the point of, of being on the run. I mean, he had many battles and victories to that point, but he was still in his early to mid-twenties probably when we get to chapter 23. He had defeated Goliath, and again, he'd had those victories over Philistines. And, and those, those victories, actually, were a great reason as to why Saul began to hate David. If you recall, we're told in, in 1 Samuel that they started singing songs and praise of those victories, and, and they gave da- David more credit than, than Saul, or at least in Saul's eyes they did, more credit for those victories. And Saul began to hate David because of that. Well... Those victories, those battle testing, that, that battle testing he had, they didn't change the fact that David was still a human and still young, right? I mean, he was still a very young man and put in a very bad situation. He was on the run from his king in the nation in which that king still ruled over. Further, even though God had sent Samuel to anoint David as king some years before this, Saul had been anointed by God as king prior, obviously, and he was still on the throne at that point. God had not seen fit to change uh, that, that placement as of yet. And David took that anointment of Saul very seriously. So not only did, did Saul come after him and put David's life in danger, David was very precarious in a very precarious situation with, with his view of Saul and how he was to treat him, how he was going to handle this situation with Saul. David wasn't just facing some foreign pagan king here. He was, he was instead facing the king of, of Israel, right? Still on the throne. And there were very many dangers and concerns for David as he was running from Saul. But he had been able to find refuge in, in various places in Israel to this point. When we get to chapter 23 of 1 Samuel, which again is the setting of this psalm, it's pretty early on in his, his fleeing from Saul and this, this ordeal he has with Saul. But he finds himself in the wilderness of Ziph. This is an area in Judah. Uh, Judah being the tribe of Israel which David himself was from. A place that I'm sure as he went into hiding there, he felt he was safe and, and hidden. He felt like if there was anywhere he could go in Israel to stay hidden and that they might take his side, so to speak, or at least they would understand his, his flight and, and understand him to not be uh, an enemy of the king or an enemy of Israel. It would be his own tribe, his own area where he grew up in and they knew him. But instead, we read this in chapter 23, beginning in verse 15. In verse 15 we read, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. Then in verse 19 we read, Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David 
among, hidden, hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh on the hill of Hekalah, which is south of Jeshimon. Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there. For it is told me that he is very cunning. See therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you, and if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. So, this is the setting we have for our psalm. David has fled. He is in an area he thought he would be safe. He is in an area where he thought he could hide and, and uh, stay hidden from Saul. Yet his own tribe, the people from his own tribe, they, they go to Saul. They tell Saul, hey, David's hiding here. He, he's, we know where he's at. You come, and our part will be, we'll turn him over to you. We, we will make sure that you get David. And so David writes this psalm in response to that. And so we see this psalm immediately as a psalm of, of need. David is in need here. It is a psalm of, of help. He's, he's crying out for help from God. And really this psalm, it follows the theme from Psalms 52 and 53 of enemies who have no regard for God. David is in a very vulnerable, vulnerable position here. He is, again, being unjustly pursued by King Saul who wanted to kill him. He has taken to hiding in various places at this point. And again, at this point, he's hiding in the land of the Ziphites, as the title tells us, and we just read. Now, to this point, David really hadn't met resistance from the people there in Israel as he had fled. Anyone who might have seen him, he had some actually come to his aid in a sense. But the Ziphites were different, right? He reached a point to where a group... They opposed him. They wanted to see King Saul find David and do whatever he wanted to do with David. So David is betrayed here by these Ziphites and he is in danger. And Saul knows where he's at and he's coming to take his life. Again, he is in a place of need and really in many ways helplessness. David turns then in our psalm to the only place where he can have true confidence. He turns to his rock and his fortress. He turns to his help, Yahweh. And he, he cries out to him in this psalm. And again, this is a very short psalm in many ways, but it is, there's a lot in this, and it's a powerful psalm. This psalm can be thought of in, in this way as we kind of break it down through these verses. Verses 1 and 2 are his prayer for deliverance. Verse 3 he prays, gives us the circumstances of that prayer. In verse 4, he gives us affirmation of his trust in his prayer. Verse 5 is the resolution to his prayer. And then verses 6 and 7 are thanksgiving for the deliverance that he believes and knows is coming because of his prayer. So beginning in verse 1, we read, O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. So we see David begins immediately here by asking for salvation. Now, obviously, this is not spiritual salvation. This is physical salvation. He's wanting God to come and save him from this, this dangerous situation he's in. He prays for salvation from Saul. David pleads to God to save him, notice, by his name, by God's name. Now, why, why does David start out that way? 
Why does he say, save me by your name? Well, it is Yahweh who had chosen David as his king, right? I mean, he had anointed, Yahweh sent Samuel to, to anoint David as the future king of Israel. So he had replaced Saul in that sense. And Saul still sat on the throne, as I've mentioned, to this point. But David knew what God had promised. He knew God's word about him being king and him being chosen by Yahweh as king. Now, we've recently studied on Wednesday nights in Ezekiel how the primary reason God promises, promised in Ezekiel specifically, to restore Israel one day is because of His name. Right? If you've been with us on Wednesday nights, then, then you're familiar with those sermons. Probably you're familiar with those teachings. And I'm sure you recall some of that as it wasn't long ago that we, we preached through that. But God and His name in those passages there in Ezekiel are directly linked with Israel and her people once she became a nation. Right? They were His earthly chosen nation. He had set them apart from all other nations and people groups. He had made a covenant with them. He was their one God, their God, their protector, their source of great blessing and a future. Surrounding nations knew that the people of Israel worshipped Yahweh and no other gods. That's what they should have been doing. That's what His name was supposed to be to them. These surrounding nations, they, they were to know that Israel depended on God and God alone. Their victories, Israel's victories over these foreign threats when they would come, they were not really Israel's, they were Yahweh's victories. Their prosperity and increase in the promised land, whenever that took place, they flowed directly from the name of Yahweh, right? And when the people of Israel had faith in Him and were wholly dedicated to Him and Him alone, His name was glorified. Not only Israel, not only in Israel, but among the, the surrounding world around them, the surrounding nations. They, they saw the prosperity during the life of, of David and Saul. They, they saw the great victories during those times, and, and they knew they were directly linked to Yahweh. Not only that, but synonymous with, God, synonymous with God's name was and still is His covenantal protections and blessings, right? They are directly linked and associated. So, of course, by the time Ezekiel began prophesying there in Judah, they had strayed from Yahweh, right? They, they were really in the darkest place in their history, and they were judged harshly for that, as you know, as we've gone through that, that book. They would soon be defeated and taken captive by Babylon during Ezekiel's ministry, and, and through that, again, we learn that God's name had been profaned by both the northern and southern kingdom for all those years, and then by those surrounding nations as a result of their rebellion. God judged them for that. And in judging them, His name again is profaned even further because those pagan nations, they began to claim that He couldn't protect them. But look what happened to Israel. Oh, this great, wonderful Yahweh, this great, wonderful God, look what's happened. He's, they're defeated. They're out of their land. There's nothing there. He's not that great. Our, our gods are greater than He is. Of course, we know that's not true. We know the truth of what happened there. We know the truth in His name. We know that God was the one that actually sent the, the judgment. He is the one that allowed that to happen because He had to judge their sin. But we know that one day, His name will be vindicated, right? One day, because He will restore His people, 
he, he will be true to His promises. His name will be vindicated in that way. We'll talk about that more in, in conclusion. But here in our psalm, we really have the same idea from David concerning God's name. David is, he is relying on God's name in his protection, in his faith. God's name and the promises of hope attached to his name for his covenantal people are the basis of David's hope in this passage. He begins there. God had chosen David to be king again. and That had not actually taken place yet, but David knew God would be true to His promises. He would be true to His Word. Now, as a side note, Saul here, he's obviously taking sides against David, right? He's wanting to kill David. And Saul knew that God was finished with him as a king. I mean, Samuel had told him that already. He knew that God had chosen David as a king by this point. Yet, Saul continued not only to reign, but to pursue and try to eliminate David as a threat to his throne. In fact, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 20, right before David flees, Saul is furious with his son Jonathan for supporting David. And in verse 30 of that chapter, he, he tells Saul there, we read this, and he goes on to tell Jonathan, Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. He said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. So we see here, Saul knew David was to be king, and he was to rule, yet he is adamantly opposed to that happening. He's adamantly opposed to David, and he soon will then try to murder David for this period of time. So what we see is absolute folly on Saul's part, right? But it's hard, and again, I said this side note, side note but it's hard to see Saul as a, a saved man being so adamantly opposed to, to what he knows to be God's Word and God's will as he chases the man of God, putting him absolutely in opposition to God and His will, right? But that's what we find here in our, in our psalm. We see Saul having chased David to this point, and, and again, David is in danger. But we also see David as a, a stark contrast to Saul. The, the person of David is so, such a different man than the person of Saul. David begins here by praying in faith in God's name and His Word. David believes God will be true to His Word. He also prays, as we see here, for vindication. Look, to this point, David had done nothing wrong, right? I mean, he had honestly gone above and beyond to try to make sure he had done nothing wrong. And he continues to do that the entire time he flees from Saul. He had been a faithful servant to this point to Saul. God had chosen David because of... Or, excuse me... Uh, Yes, God chose David because of Saul's unfaithfulness, but that was not David's fault, right? David did not try to pursue the, the throne on his own. That was Saul's undoing. David had not gathered men to try and take the throne, even when he knew that God had appointed him as the king or anointed him as the king. He didn't do as his own son would do later on and try and deceive the people to turn them against Saul. No, David had been faithful to Saul to this point. Even though, again, he knew he, him to be, him, he knew himself to be the anointed king. And he was entirely innocent of wrongdoing. So if Saul had been, in, been successful in killing David here, not only would that do damage to the Word of God in the sense that God would not fulfill His promise to, to make him king, but David also knew that it would fail to show his innocence, right? I mean, he, all of his innocence in this whole situation, would, he would seem 
guilty in a sense. Saul would seem justified in what he'd done, and there would be no vindication for him in this situation if, if Saul were able to succeed in getting him and killing him. And So David knew and prays for this vindication. He knew that only true vindication could come from God Himself. Uh, it's not like David was going to be able to walk around the people of Israel and, and go give speeches and, and win them over uh, and convince them of his innocence here. He didn't have an army to go against Saul here. Not, a, not an army that would, would be able to fight against this, this king. And, he, and again, he had no, no desire to do that. He's not trying to kill God's anointed. He is patiently waiting on God Himself to, do, to put Him in place. But he, David, nothing David could do would vindicate him on his own. He had to rely on God Himself to vindicate him. And so he prays for that vindication. In verse 2, David goes on and he says, Oh God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. He, he pleads for God to listen and hear his prayer. And it kind of maybe sounds silly, right? I mean, why would David plead to God to listen and hear? I mean, he knows he's God. He knows he hears. He's everywhere. He, he listens. And it's possible that right here David is kind of, we get a picture of him in court in a sense of pleading before the judge, the only judge who matters. Not, not the Ziphites, not Saul. God is the only one who knows the truth and he's, he's pleading to God in, in a sense of asking his case to be heard and to, to vindicate him in his innocence, so to speak. But, but I think more so, and this will be a theme in the middle of this psalm here, David is just praying truth here. It's good to pray things about God, truth about God, that we know to be true in the first place, right? I mean, to remind ourselves of those truths. I think that's what David is doing here. He knows God is listening. He knows God hears. But he's praying that truth out. He's he's hearing that for himself in his prayer. Truths about God and His nature. As Spurgeon stated about God hearing us in our prayers, as long as God hath an open ear, we cannot be shut up in trouble. Amen to that. A, a truth that David, I believe, well knew in this psalm, and he's proclaiming that with confidence here. Right? I mean, he's praying that truth. Then in verse three, we we get an kind of an interesting uh, twist in, in some ways. David says that strangers had risen against him. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. The word strangers here, it can be translated insolent men or even arrogant men. And that would certainly make sense in our passage. But every major translation out of the NIV, they chose to translate it either as strangers or foreigners. And, and I really think that's the right translation here. According to Gerald Wilson in his commentary on this psalm, this word used for strangers or foreigners, it's almost always exclusively used of a, a foreign or pagan nation in the Old Testament. Those who do not share in that covenantal relationship with Yahweh. Now, that's interesting because as we've read, David is talking about the Ziphites, right? And, and those were people in Israel. They were people of Israel. They were in Judah, they were not some foreign nation. They were part of the covenantal relationship with Yahweh. But David refers to them here as, as strangers or as, as foreigners. Not only that, at the end of this verse, David says that they had not set God before them. And I think that's the key to this understanding. 
In multiple ways, David sees and refers to these people, these men of Ziphite, as no different than the pagan nations around them. Why would he do that? Well, to begin with, even if they, since they are Israelites, even being Israelites, they're no friends to David, right? I mean, they are trying to turn him over to Saul in this very moment. But it goes deeper than that. David calls them ruthless here. They, they seem to have no interest in the truth about what's going on. David, what, what's, why David's hiding, why David is fleeing from Saul. These men, again, do not set themselves before God. Or not set God before themselves. So I think we can see from that, they, they really are worshiping themselves instead of worshiping God. They're more interested in following their own desires instead of following God Himself. As Israelites, especially from the tribe of Judah, we can probably assume that they'd heard the truth of David's plight by this point, And the truth of David's anointing. Yet, they didn't care here. They sided with Saul and therefore they sided against David. It's not hard to see that them doing this is, is most likely purely out of self-gain. Uh, I mean, they're, they're, they're trying to pick a side that they think is going to be the best side for them in this. After all, Saul was still the reigning king at this point, right? David is on the run. I mean, again, I've said this already, but he didn't have a large army behind him to go against Saul. From the human perspective, as they sat there, it's very likely that David looked like he was the losing side. How could he, with such a small group of men supporting him, hope to defeat the king of Israel? Or how could he hope to be kept from being put to death? Well, I mean, the truth of it is, is those who trust the word and name of Yahweh, that answer is clear, right? How David would, would escape Saul, how he would be able to eventually be the king. But for those who trusted in a man, who were trusting in Saul, those who trusted a king like all the other nations whom Saul was, that truth was not so clear in how David would ultimately be able to, to overcome Saul. These Ziphites, they desired only to gain from David's troubles by siding with Saul in hopes that Saul would reward them for their faithfulness. I mean, I think as we read that, that uh, passage there in 1 Samuel 23, I think we saw that, right? And we saw that indication. And so instead of acting as God's covenantal people, acting according to His Word, they acted like people from all the other pagan nations. And so David refers to them in that way. Then having stated his reason for prayer in verses 1-3, through three, in verses 4-5, through five, David begins to pray with confidence and assurance that his prayer is going to be answered. He says, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. So he begins, he declares, Behold here. I mean, it's just like he's, he's grabbing hold of, of something here. Behold, look, see. He's prayed for this help in his time of despair. And, and it's as though he immediately cries out with praise for his divine champion, God. He prays truth again here. I mentioned this kind of a theme in the middle of this, this passage. Truth that he well knows. Truth that God is his helper. God upholds his life. And God would not allow his enemies to go unpunished. Remember, David had fought and defeated Goliath as a teenager by this point. He had fought, defeated, and killed thousands of Philistines by this point. David knew the preserving hand of God. But in praying these truths, David is really doing two things. He is giving glory to God 
for the great truths about God, and he's also reminding himself of these truths. Don't forget, David was still human, right? Just like we are. I mean, he's no different than we are. Allow, allow me to let you in on a secret for a second. One you may know. I'm sure you do. You're not the only person who struggles to have unwavering faith in God and His promises 100% of the time. I struggle with that too. The only one to have ever lived to have never done that, never wavered for a second in faith in, in God, faith in the Father, was Jesus. He's the only one. David was no different than we are in that sense. We all have moments of weaknesses. Our minds comprehend the truths about God that we know, that we love. We, we comprehend His sovereignty. We comprehend His love. We comprehend His promises. But, but our hearts at times, they want to doubt those truths, right? So when we go to Him in prayer as David has here, it is a good thing to remind ourselves of those truths, to vocalize them in our prayers. And David does that. But let's, let's take a look at these truths that, that David prays here in verses 4 and 5. He says, God is my helper. Not in the sense of, we just do our own thing. David says he's doing his own thing, and, and then God you know, is just there to kind of help out when he's in a bad spot. right? No, this word helper can also be translated protector or supporter. And God is all of those things and more. And not just when we think we need it. Right? He has those things to us when we don't know we need it. He's those things to us at all times as His people. And David is reminding himself that this is the God he serves and he depends on. And that hasn't changed just because he's in a bad situation. He's still that God. He also says that God is upholder of his life. God sustains life. David knew that he took every single breath God because God gave it to him. Again, this was not just a cry because of a bad situation that David was in. David knows, knew that God upholds and sustains his life at all times. And so again, he's reminding himself of this truth. It was no harder for God to sustain his life in that moment, as bad as it might have seemed, than it was when he was in no danger and just enjoying a meal without any type of surrounding danger. David knew he couldn't give himself breath, right? He knew that he wasn't giving himself one single breath, nor could he get out of this danger unless God granted it and purposed it. And so he's reminding himself of that truth, and he has faith in that truth. See the confidence that David had in God here in, in, in verse 5, and when he says, He will return the evil to my enemies. David had confidence in his deliverance because his confidence, again, was bound up in God's faithfulness. Let me make this point. God's confidence, excuse me, David's confidence, it was not because he had declared it here, right? Like this is not some word of faith situation where God is going to deliver me and so God's bound to, to do what David said. David's confidence here is not because of, of that, because he's prayed it into existence. David had confidence because he knew God was faithful. He knew God would be true to His Word. And so the enemies of David were the enemies of God. So their works and their actions were evil, right? David knew God would repay that evil in judgment. David's prayer states that God would, would put an end to His enemies here. These enemies specifically, 
Not that all Ziphites would, would cease to exist, but that those who had been a part of this betrayal and this evil, they would be judged. Now, David was praying here most, uh, most likely for a, a, a physical end, in, or excuse me, a, a spiritual end in their, their, this sense. I mean, he, he knows that he's going to return this evil on them, uh, that this judgment is going to come for their wickedness and their sin, right? Judgment again for how they had treated him, standing against him, standing against the man that God had anointed, and standing, so therefore standing against God himself. Now, David is, is not really praying for revenge for himself here, and it's not what he's doing. He's, he's just praying for God's holiness and his faithfulness to be vindicated in this act. Now, with that said, this portion of prayer, this psalm, is often referred to as an imprecatory psalm. You've probably heard that word, heard that term before, which is it's just a psalm or a prayer. It's meant to invoke judgment or calamity or, or even curses on the, the enemies of God. And so David is seen here praying judgment and vengeance on his enemies here, on the, these men. But as David Garland and Tremper Longman state in their commentary on this passage, the imprecation here in this passage is, is not vindictive but it is expressive of trust in divine justice. What he's saying is that David is not praying, praying for vindication in the sense of he wants vengeance. He's praying for vindication in the sense that he, he trusts in the divine nature of God to judge evil, to judge wickedness. And any, anyone who is coming against David in this sense, and in his innocence, that is wickedness, it is evil, and God will judge that. In verses 6-7, through seven, David begins to, to shift and, and he seems to anticipate his delivery, his salvation here. He says, With a free will offering I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. How could David have such confidence in the, in the midst of a, a, a situation like this, a, in the midst of such danger? I mean, he's again in the midst of a prayer where he's just prayed for deliverance, right? I mean, there's no way that it's, it's happened in, in this second or a few seconds that he's been, been praying. Well, it's because he had faith, again, in God's Word, right? He had faith God would be true to His Word and His promises and that He would help him. And so God, or excuse me, David makes a, a promise to make a free will offering here. A free will offering was one which was not required by the law. It was not mandated for a propitiation of sins or for tithing purposes or for a consequence of a vow. It was just an offering that was entirely made out of the free will of the giver in gratitude, most often, and, or for love for Yahweh. That's what we see in David's heart here. David's heart here, even in danger, is pouring out thankfulness to God as he anticipates his deliverance. So even in this short prayer, David has fortified his confidence in God's faithfulness, right? As he's prayed to God, as he's he stated these truths, he has fortified his confidence in God's faithfulness. Remember also that this is a psalm, right? I mean, so this was written and sung eventually among the Israelites in, in corporate worship. And, and we perhaps could see this as David writing in almost an anticipation of it, of it being sung or being shared with others. Despite his current circumstances, his current difficulties and concerns, David hoped and anticipated singing praises of God with other believers for his deliverance. We could take lesson from that, I think. I mean, we can try and look past any trial or tragedy that we might have and look forward to that future praise and joy that we can have with our fellow brothers and sisters after we've come through that trial, we've come through maybe a tragedy. 
And we could share in that with our brothers and sisters and the, the joy that we, we've come through that and praise as we've come through that. But even if our trial or our tragedy were to end in death, we can still take comfort that in eternity, we will still worship and praise God in His company with fellow believers, right? We can look forward to that and praise God for that even in difficult times. And as I think David is doing here, and David promises then to give thanks in the name of Yahweh, for it is good. So we kind of see a bookend here to this psalm in a sense. It begins with the focus on God's name and it ends here in the same. Focus on God's name because of His faithfulness. And the truth of it is, is there's nothing better or more true than the name of God. Finally, there in verse 7, David ends with a past reminder of God's faithfulness to him. He had depended on God in the past when he had faced these incredible enemies and, and God had delivered him to this point. And these past experiences, they had served David to add strength to him and add strength to his faith in his current danger. So David had confidence here in this, this passage as we end in, the, in his prayer that he would triumph and his enemies would be judged because of the faithfulness of God, right? Because of God's name. So I, I said it was pretty short, but we've got a little bit of a conclusion. I want to I apply some of these things to us that we've maybe not applied so far. To begin with, and first, we know God's Word is true, right? I mean, we know that. We know it's going to come to pass. If we truly believe in Christ, if we truly have faith in Him, we know that God's Word is true and it's going to come to pass. And, and, and our praying for it for His will to be done, for His Word to come true, it does not make His Word more true. Okay, It is true whether we, we pray for it or not. But that does not mean we still should not pray God's Word. We should, should still not pray for His will to come true. David knew that God had anointed him as king, so he knew that he would be the king of Israel. But that had not fully come to pass yet. And so a major thrust of this prayer here. It's for the fulfillment of God's promises due to the faithfulness of His name, right? So we can and we should see parallels for that, uh, of that in our prayers today and as we think today. Not only in our prayers for God to give us comfort or joy during difficult times, which we know are always available to us as believers, but also as we look around in this current world and we see the evil nature of society and, and, and we pray for deliverance from this evil and from this current world. That's why we pray, Your kingdom come, Your will be done. We know Jesus is coming, right? Our praying, Your kingdom come, doesn't mean it's more true to come, right? He's going to come, whether we pray that or not. But by us praying that, we're doing the same thing that David was doing, right? We're giving glory to God for the truth of that, for what we know He's going to do in fulfilling His promises, and for His deliverance. And we're also reminding ourselves that we have a, a future to come. right? That we have a, a deliverance from this evil society, this evil world that we know to be true and we know will happen. Second, we trust in God and His Word, but we don't do that purely because we've seen that He's correct and accurate in His Word. right? Let me explain. Both of those things are true. He is correct. He is accurate. He's never been wrong. But we don't praise Him purely because we think He's smart, right? Because He's been able to, to get things correct so far. Or because we see His predictions come true. We don't, that's not what should give us 
our faith, or at least not the basis of our faith. If that's the entire basis of our faith in His Word, then we are constantly looking for new things to prove to us over and over that He's right. Or we will constantly be anticipating ways in which He might get something wrong. I mentioned earlier in this psalm that David, he'd looked back on past experiences there. We saw that towards the end of his psalm. He'd looked back on those past experiences where God had delivered him from his enemies. And this gave him further confidence in his current situations. But those past experiences, again, were not the basis of his faith and his confidence. Although God is gracious enough to give us experiences where we can see His faithfulness and see the power, His power in our lives, those experiences, again, should not be the, faith, the basis of our faith in God either, just as it was not for David. We have faith and we trust in God's Word because we know He is Creator God and He is entirely and wholly committed to His Word and His holy name. And He is worthy of our faith. Any examples that we have in our life of His faithfulness to us are just given to us to, as a gift, to strengthen. But again, that's not the basis of our faith. Quoting Wilson again, when our trust, is, our trust in human companions is betrayed, when our leaders fail, and even when our parents abandon and abuse us, God is there to hold us and sustain us just as David declared in verse 4. And we know that because God is faithful to His name, and He's faithful to His Word. Third, and this is a hard one for us, I think, because nobody wants to go through adversity. I'm raising my hand first. Adversity is hard. Nobody wants to go through trials and tribulations. But the truth of those trials and tribulations are that adversity, they can sometimes bring about the sweetest praise and fellowship for a child of God with our Savior. Let us not turn away from trials and tragedies or trials and tribulations or think them as punishment for us. No, we don't want them. I'm not praying for them. But when they come, when God allows them to happen to our lives, let us embrace them knowing that God will bring us through, knowing that God has a purpose behind them, and knowing that ultimately this is an opportunity to bring us closer to our Savior, to bring us sweet communion and praise with Him. And we can share it with our brothers and sisters as well. Fourth, these adversaries of David here, they, they failed, right? This didn't work. I mean, David wasn't captured by Saul. He was not put to death by Saul. Their, their plan, it failed. And it failed because, as we are told in the psalm, they were without regard for God. In our psalm, the Ziphites, they should have been in line with God's Word and His will because they were part of God's covenant people just as David was. But they were not in line with that. They were in line with their own self-interest. And so they were without regard for God. It's easy to see many enemies in, in, of God in the world today, right? I mean, we can look around, that's easy oftentimes to see many of whom who have no desire to give even the slightest acknowledgement to God and, and they're more than happy to parade themselves as enemies and adversaries of God. That is the height of folly. But the truth of it too is that there are many who are much like the Zephites. They proclaim to be faithful to God and His Word. They go to church, they claim to believe in Jesus and follow Him. They offer prayers and tithes. Many of them even fool themselves into thinking they are serving God. But more often... They are not, and they have no regard for God in their lives. They truly only care for their self-interests. If we truly trust in the name of Jesus, 
if we, really, we truly trust in His Word, we claim that, proclaim that, we should always, His will should always take precedent then over our perceived wants and our perceived needs, right? Our, we should not put ourselves before God in His will or His Word. Let us not follow the world in that. Let us put ourselves in line with God's Word and desire His will. Lastly, victory is God's. Victory was God's in this situation. Victory is God's in our lives. Victory will be God's in the future. But we share in the spools and benefits of His victory if we are His children. That's true sometimes during our mortal lives now, but it's more powerfully true in our eternal lives to come. We are more than conquerors in Christ, according to Romans 8.37. In Isaiah 53, that great messianic prophecy which gives such great detail about the life and purpose of the suffering servant to come, it promises this in verses 10 through 12. It says, But Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If you would place his soul as a guilt offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of Yahweh will succeed in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. But his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide for him a portion with the many, and he will divide the spool. With the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressions, the transgressors. The promise by the Father there is to give the righteous one, Jesus, a seed. Despite his suffering and his death, his seed are those whom he bore the sins of and interceded for, those whom he bore born who will be born again through His sacrifice, through His death, it is those who will be strong whom Jesus will divide the spool of victory with when He comes. I mentioned earlier that even though, when I began this, even though Israel had been defeated, eventually, in, in, in later on, and we, we read about that in Ezekiel, you know, they would be defeated by the, the Babylonians by the will of God for their rebellion, and that God's name was profaned by those nations and really by the... Uh, by the nation themselves, I said that His name would be vindicated one day, right? Because those nations would one day see His faithfulness to His promises when Israel would be restored again, they would be gathered again, and the King of the world would sit on His throne in Jerusalem. I don't have time to preach it. I have before. If you want to go listen to Isaiah 53, you can go listen to that for a further explanation of that, that entire passage. But Isaiah 53 is a picture of that future to come but through repentant Israel. It is to be understood as the nation themselves in the still yet future coming in that moment to see Jesus as their Messiah and declaring the truth of His life, His death, His resurrection, His return. God's holy name will be vindicated in that day both in Israel and in the whole world. And we will share in the spool of that if we believe and trust in Christ Himself. We are to look forward to that. We are to pray that truth. We are to be reminded of it. Even in difficult times, we are to be as David and, and pray for deliverance. Trust in God's Word. Trust in His holy name to know that He will be true to it. And that we'll have faith and we'll have confidence. Stand with me.